0: Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional journeys, experiences they've had, reflections and ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic publications or professional meetings. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Columbia University, And I'm your host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. I'm working with and collaborating with clinicians and professional organizations, research teams to develop the series. And our goal is really to capture the narrative history of eating disorders with the hope that our conversations will bring insights and guidance that will inspire new and next generations of leaders in the field. Today, I'm talking with Donna Friedman. Welcome, Donna. Thank you, Kathy. It's great to be here. Donna is founder of the Friedman Center for Eating Disorders at the Medical University of South Carolina and is someone with her own personal history of living with an eating disorder. She is an internationally recognized mental health advocate Uh, who particularly focuses on eating disorders and has served on advisory boards for One Mind and the Columbia WHO Collaborating Center for Global Mental Health. Along this journey, Donna decided to pursue a counseling degree and has her own clinical practice in Charleston, South Carolina. Donna is the first person in the history of the Academy for Eating Disorders to serve as the patient carer representative. We're going to want to hear more about that, Donna, as we go. So today, let's get started sort of at the beginning, Donna, with a a warm welcome. And if you could share with us what the early experience, what your early experience was in your introduction to what an eating disorder is.
1: Thank you so much, Kathy, and I'm honored to be here and to be participating in what I think is going to be a really informational and helpful um, podcast for, for many. Um, so I was diagnosed in 1983, um, myself just after my sophomore year of college and, with anorexia nervosa. Um, and it was very severe and at the time there wasn't a lot of research about eating disorders and uh, the first like celebrity Karen Carpenter had just died and that kind of brought some focus to it. Um, but the the method of treatment at that point was hospitalization long-term um, no eating disorder program, at least in the Southeast um, other than Duke university. So I went into a general psych unit and lived a year um, in locked, in a locked treatment facility, with um, with general mental health population. And I had this very wise, um, psychiatrist, Dr. Kenneth Rockwell, and he would take six of us. And when I say of us, he would take six patients. And because we were so high intensity and we required so much observation, um, around the table and just, you know, we were pretty intensively um, supervised. So anyway, so I did that. I did the journey at Duke for a year and then um, was discharged probably about seven months in and then had a significant relapse and went back and that completed the year. Um, After that, I um, decided that I was going to work and do intensive outpatient. And then finally, I got to a point where I was going to go back to school and finish my degree, which had been on the table um, since I had gone into treatment. My care at Duke was very punitive. Um, there was no dietary at direction, instruction. It was, you know, if you, you had to eat 3000 calories, you ate it all in chocolate cake, that was okay. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I was a pleaser part of, you know, we know in these eating disorders, the, the kind of lack of voice and anyway, I did everything they told me to do, but I'd get out and fall right back on my face. So I went in and
0: out of different programs and, um, one Um, of the, just one sec, when, when you were on the Duke unit, just trying to visualize it, was there anyone else who had an eating disorder or were you there on your own? There were six of us. So oh, he so would only... you said the seven of us, you meant the seven individuals who had an eating disorder yes. who were on the general unit. The
1: psych unit. So we had a table in the day room Got and it.
0: we would come in
1: and the TV was there and we'd eat and there'd be a nurse at both ends and then there would be another table with the other psych patients. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had to stay an hour after our meal. We were woken at six in the morning to get weighed. Um, And it was at that time, all girls. Um, And so, but we were with shock treatment patients and some OCD um, extreme. I mean, it was, it it was a very, very um, traumatic experience. Honestly, I was relieved to be there, but um, I kept thinking I was crazy and um, my parents would come weekly to visit, but it was very different then. they would come to get a, a report card on me. And mm-hmm. Donna did this right. She did that right. She had to sit in the day room. Um, so it was, a, it was not family therapy because the rest of my family was not involved in the least. Um, but well, I relapsed and then went, Finally, my doctor said that at Duke said I I needed to be institutionalized at the North Carolina State Hospital for three years because it was there just wasn't any more that he felt like he could do. And my dad was like, absolutely not. Um, And so he was a traveling salesman and he had a colleague whose wife had been bulimic and said, there's this woman in Cleveland, Ohio, and She has a different approach and, you know, my wife has done really well with her. So at 21, my parents put me on a plane to maybe I was 22, but on a plane to Cleveland, Ohio, and this hippie chick with long hair picks me up at the airport with her husband and literally takes me out in the country to her house by myself and um, proceeds to tell me we're going to eat from the earth. And she takes me off all my meds. She, um, then she stripped me down into my underwear and took pictures of me. Now, if we think about that in 2023, it's pretty shocking. Mm -hmm. Um, But she wanted me to see how skinny I was. And after leaving there for two weeks, I then went home and proceeded to call her for the next year at six o'clock every night and tell her what I had eaten and how I felt about it. I also think-
0: punctuate, let's punctuate that for a moment because the treatments that you're describing as you describe them, I don't have the sense that you thought these providers were intentionally doing something nope. uh, to hurt virtue, but what they were doing, we understand today was so far away from what is therapeutic and constructive. And it is a really serious take-home message around what happens when we don't have evidence-based treatments and we don't build the evidence because as you say, parents are desperate, families are desperate and are going to try all kinds of things, including some variation of snake oil mm-hmm. if there's a promise that this is going to save their child's life exactly
1: and you know the other thing i uncovered with in this box that had my name on it when mom died was how much medication i was literally at duke i was mm-hmm. literally drugged it was shocking how much medication i was taking every day and it's just ironic that my mother kept so the reason she had the duke um the she just had the bill, and I looked through the bill and could see over medication. And I'm sure that's you know where people were. We didn't have the SSRIs then. So we had the anxiety, and obviously the anxiety was the driving force. And so they just really over-medicated me.
0: And again, right, when we we know now that these medications are not effective for treating anorexia nervosa, especially when someone is severely underweight. Maybe, maybe the Xanax helped you manage anxiety a little bit and some other symptoms, but certainly we know they're not the primary strategies for treating anorexia nervosa. But again, it speaks to how little the field knew at a time when you needed good care. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And I think, um, interestingly enough, I don't remember a lot of Duke. And I think, you know, I couldn't, I, I was talking to my therapist and saying, I just can't remember. And then when I found this discovery of how much medication I was on per day, mm-hmm. I, kept, well, I didn't remember, you know, I I a zombie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, after my stint in Ohio, I went back, finished my degree. And went to Michigan following a guy and then met my husband. Um, but really continued to struggle. And, um, I had treatment. I, I had a woman that I saw for 10 years, three times a week with four little kids. And that was a whole nother thing. You know, I never thought I'd have children. Um, and I was, right. t- These are you're four little kids, not hers. Yeah. Yes, yes. My four, four little, little kids. kids. Right. Right. And, um, <laughs> So, but I would drive out in snow, ice, whatever, rain, and see her. And after a stunt of cancer with my husband, I watched myself relapse. And at that point, I had a, like, three, five, seven, and nine-year-old. And I realized at that point, I, I couldn't leave. I just could not go back into a residential program at that time. And I just didn't want that to be a memory for my children that mom left and went somewhere. Um, so I was um, living in Ann Arbor and decided that I had read a book that a friend had given me and thrown in a drawer and it was a book called Gaining by Amy Lou. Mm-hmm. And I finally read it. And I was so inspired because she offered such hope in this book. And I thought, Oh, I'll write her an email and see, I'm sure she won't respond. But after I finished the book, I wrote her an email and she immediately responded. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, you know, I need to get her to Ann Arbor because I knew that there was a population of students that were struggling. And so we, we brought her in. And in that process, I worked with um, the Center for Eating Disorders in Ann Arbor and met my now therapist and watched her approach and her, her discussion with Amy, About eating disorders. And Amy was diagnosed in the 70s. Actually, I don't know if she was ever clinically diagnosed, but she wrote the book Solitaire. Mm -hmm. And she was able to put get into recovery without like being hospitalized. But um she she was just fascinating to learn and talk learn about and talk to. And anyway, through that, I met my now therapist of 18 years, Judy Banker, and what was so, you know, I had had many other therapists along the way, but I fired this pa- this therapist of 10 years and um, was terrified. And I said, you know, it's, this isn't working. I'm getting worse. And she had done some really unethical things. Um, so I got up the nerve and um, I, you know, told her I couldn't work with her anymore. And when I walked out her door, she said, you know, I see why people burn out from treating this population because you're watching someone go to die. So she basically, I walked out of her office after 10 years. And in and not as you know, not directly saying I'm gonna die, but she, you know, alluded to that fact. Um, and so I had been working on this presentation at University of Michigan, and I just called my therapist, Judy Banker, and said, you know, I know we've been socializing. I know this is not a normal, you know, relationship with a patient and a therapist, but would would you be my therapist? And
0: she said, yes. And before we move on to starting with Judy, when you went back to Michigan, to Ann Arbor, Mm -hmm. you and ultimately met your husband, you were doing well at that point? actually, when I met him, no,
1: I was Mm -hmm. not doing well. And that um, prompted, actually, it's interesting, Amy Dennis Baker, he went to see her. And so I had the relapse in the early 90s, just after we were married. And and that's where they actually said, you know, I hadn't had a period in 15 years. And they actually said, you can have children, you just need to get your weight back. And so Amy used to say in her book, which I think is very relevant, I lived in the half-life, like, you know, I was just, I weighed just enough to have my babies. And I just, I was still struggling. I was
0: still very entrenched in behaviors. And so sort of like people talk about the experience of the journey of recovery from alcohol and we'll talk about a dry drunk right yes. somebody who's not drinking anymore but not really in recovery is that what you're describing here you were just over the edge enough to have these children that you wanted to have and desperately wanted to build this family but not in a place where you were really living in recovery full a full recovery where you're flourishing yes. so then you're vulnerable And you
1: relapse. Yes. And, um, my kids would probably be very, um, very honest about it, but I would be Christmas morning and I would be out running for hours and they'd be sitting there in their little matching pajamas waiting for mom to come home. So Santa could be there, you know, it's just, it just, it had gotten really out of hand. And then that's how I got into treatment with Judy and started what I feel like was the, really the beginning of real recovery. You know, when people ask me, I, um, I say, I, I think that that would be when I got into real recovery and, you know, as we know with the neuroscience, which I think the researchers are are alluding to and the ones that you're talking to as well as the ones I've talked to is that we're finding this is a neuroscience, you know, there's a huge neuroscience component. So mm-hmm. I always say I'm not recovered. I would never say I was recovered. I, I work with this every day, but my quality of life is up here mm-hmm. as opposed to down here. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I look at it.
0: Tell me about this idea of that from a, your lived experience perspective, you say, you know, there's got to be some neuroscience here. What makes you say that? Well, and it's funny,
1: I um, asked Walt Kay like two or three months ago. I'm like, okay, Walt, I've gone through every bit of my family dynamic. You know, I've, I've done 40 years of therapy. And right. why am I still terrified to eat a steak or I'm terrified to eat X, Y, or Z, or I'm terrified not to exercise, you know, like, and he said that they're really finding that the reason it lingers is because it is in the neuro pathway. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I, I, my hope is that's we get that figured out, but um, yeah, and I, I just, I think that it's a wiring. And I, as I look back on a ch- as being a child, um, you know, we had a lady that st- stayed with us, and she would read me bedtime stories, and she'd fall asleep, and I'd be running around. So, you know, I think I came into this world with anxiety,
0: uh-huh. but it was
1: just never discussed or talked about. And then I have a my family history of is of addiction. My uncle died of alcoholism. My father, I think, had a, some drinking issues. I think my grandmother on my mom's side was anorexic. So. You know, I, I see the genetic piece as well as a part of this. You know, I have five, there's five of us. Why was I the one mm-hmm. that had the, the eating disorder? You know, so I, I question that, but I think there's kind of a trifecta in the culmination of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And the trifecta uh, being the being situational, genetic and neuroscience, as mm-hmm. you know, my son was diagnosed at 14 with anorexia. Mm-hmm. And, um so if if you weren't looking at the genetic piece, there you had it, you know, and I was praying for the strong, confident daughter. I got that, and then all of a sudden, my son is mm-hmm. struggling, which, as we know, the population of males is far less or far less diagnosed than
0: right. females. So you described so far a journey. really, thank you for sharing your personal journey. and, I have to say, Donna, for me as a clinician, it's remarkable to me your capacity to recount your experience and the generosity with which you recognize that the treatment you got was not right, was in some cases outright wrong and whether it was wrong because it was not evidence-based or unethical or what we would consider today completely re-traumatizing. But as you tell the story, you have a capacity to observe that it was, as much as you were desperate, the providers were desperate to give you something to provide some care, but you know, it's sort of not good enough as a field. It's just not good enough. We certainly can't, and things have improved, right? Um, But we have a long way to go. You describe clinicians, you describe your parents coming, you describe being one of five kids. There are a lot of people in this story Mm -hmm. and you describe your own temperament essentially, and maybe coming into this world with, a certain temperament that predisposed you to being anxious, uh, a genetic risk that's about generations of people in your family. As you consider all of these experiences with these people in your family, how does that get you to your evolving understanding of eating disorders and the big idea that you want to share with us today?
1: So that's a really good question. And I want to just go back on what one of the things you said, you know, I, I don't believe that I would be here today had I not had those various treatments, because in the very beginning, I was dying, I was 68 pounds, I was, you know, so dupe saved my life in that capacity. And then I so I feel like there were nuggets of each of these experiences, whether good, bad or otherwise that did bring me to the place where I am today. Mm -hmm. And so as opposed to being angry or resentful, I just think we were all doing the best we could do providers and my parents, myself, you know, I, I, I was desperate to get better. I just didn't know how. So, you know, it's, I've been in private practice now for five years and just, the work we've done together, Kathy, and the work with the academy—I've—you asked me to to think about one idea, and I'm like, gosh, how am I going to narrow that down to one? There's uh, many ideas I have around this, but the word connection really resonated with me, and it started with one of my patients um, saying she liked. I was wearing actually this exact outfit. It was, it's like a nice sweatsuit with tennis shoes. And she goes, you look so cute. I go cute. No, I don't. I mean, you know, I said, I, I, you know, and she goes, no, that's what I love about you. You come to, you come into the office and you're just you and you don't come in like all dressed up. Sometimes, you know, I dress up, but not, she goes, it's like this warm, it's just approachable. And so that thought started me thinking on connection. Okay. She connects because I'm not my psychiatrist from 1983 who had horn rim glasses, who said very little, and he was, you know, tweed coat. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the quintessential psychiatrist. <laughs> right. and so, I, so, and my environment is very warm. And so then I just started thinking, okay, connection. And then it really hit me that, My key to real recovery was my connection with my therapist. And why was that? It was because for the first time in my life, someone listened to me about recovery. And basically, instead of telling me that I had to do this, that, and the other thing, they looked at me, she looked at me and said, I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here mm-hmm. to guide you. I'm here to suggest things. And the first one was, I said, the scale is a trigger. She goes, okay, get, let's get rid of the scale. And I'm like, what? You know, I had been weighed and had such a calculated weigh-in with my nutrition. It's, that just was crazy making in and of itself. I would eat the same thing. I'd wear the same clothes to get weight. I mean, it was, a, it was consuming me. And she said, Donna, I will know by looking at you and your body, if, if we're in trouble. So out with the scale Mm -hmm. and we just started to piece together what, what I thought of recovery, who I was. And Mm -hmm. so again, I go back to that connection and for so long, my connection had been to the eating disorder and to that. I, I connected to the eating disorder in a way that was actually incredible and good. And that was my friend. So I was connecting with something because I was feeling so less than, and I I felt worthless. So, you know, me and the eating disorder, we had a great relationship, but I could not get better without disconnecting from, Mm -hmm. from the persona of me with my eating disorder. And I see that with my patients. It's like, They're terrified of giving up the eating disorder because what, what do they have? It's like all the armor is taken off. So ultimately, as they go through recovery, I want them to be able to connect with themselves because I think at the end of the day, you have to connect with yourself and do this. Yes. With help medications, what, you know, whatever types of therapy, but you ultimately have to separate yourself from your eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I think that that gives me a lot of, a lot of experience, but a lot of wisdom to give to my clients because, you know, I don't tell them I don't have distorted eating thoughts. I, I'm very honest, you know, I, um, you know, I tell them I still struggle from time to time and, you know, it is really resonated a lot with them because I think, for, it's such a complicated illness, and it's you know as we talk about the way of treatment and the way you know we're going to get um, better care for folks, it's like this is complicated. And the people that I work with that are addiction specialists, they won't touch this. They won't mm-hmm. touch eating disorders. They're, I'm like, okay, wait, you work with alcoholics and drug addicts because you have to make peace with your poison. So. Mm-hmm you know, so connecting with someone that understands what that's like Mm -hmm. and how challenging it was for me, but they
0: see hope. So this big idea around connection, like many big ideas there, it's profoundly simple and profoundly layered and complex, right? You In talking about connection, you've mentioned connecting to the eating disorder, connecting to yourself, connecting to your therapist, connections that were constructive and therapeutic connections that weren't. And that's a lot, right? And uh, how do you, when you think about connection and you you knew when the connection was right, right? You you talk about... Getting to a point with this therapist who you'd been seeing for many, many years and thinking this connection isn't quite right and, or isn't right at all. Maybe, maybe it was at one time, but certainly not now. How did you know? How did you know that this was a connection that you had to step away from? I don't know. I
1: think it was just this gut feeling. And I actually did a talk on this through aeg
0: several years ago about breaking up with your therapist i mean Mm -hmm. it would so tell me about that because you also mentioned that you are someone who has a tendency to please and here you have this therapist who is kind of shaking her head and in not such a veiled way expressing disapproval that you're leaving And it's hard. It's really hard to trust yourself at moments like that. So tell me about breaking up with your therapist and and how does the story of connection fit in there?
1: Well, so obviously, you know, treatment, uh, me going into residential treatment was, you know, a big word. And the interesting thing is she, my husband would call her. And I would walk into session and she'd say, well, your husband called and he said this. And so it's like I'd walk in and I'd be in trouble. Like I felt in trouble. And I started lying to her because I wasn't doing what she was recommending. So mm-hmm. it became just like this hour of just, I really didn't trust her. After she talked to my husband behind my back several times, I lost trust. And Mm -hmm. then I felt really insecure because I felt like, you know, she had broken the trust between myself and her and it was like, I felt ganged up upon. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
1: think that was it. I think the, the, the threat of residential, but more importantly, how I felt I had so disconnected with her because of. I was lying. I wasn't connecting. I was lying. I would lie to her about what I was eating. I'd lie to her about everything. And so that started to feel terrible. Like I'm lying to please her Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I'm getting sicker because, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not in treatment Mm
0: -hmm. person. That's really profound. You're not in treatment. You're not connecting. Right. I mean, what you said is so simple, but it's so true you're you're in the room but if you're lying to her and you don't trust her then you're not really connecting and there's something that there's a moment it sounds like where you, it it, it came together in a way it clicked where you said we're we're not connected we're not together on this and it's not helping me You know, we talk about this a lot in therapy about assertiveness
1: and, you know, using voice because that's also a huge piece in my recovery was that I don't feel like I was ever able to use my voice in many decisions that I'm in a lot of different decisions in my life and how, you know, it's terrifying and to use your voice. And a lot of my clients, you know, I'm like, you can you can be assertive without losing that person. And, you know, I think probably I would have done this sooner had I not been afraid of the outcome, like Mm -hmm. she'd be mad at me.
0: Donna, in, you said the first treatment was 1983 at Duke. So in the early 1980s, actually through the 1980s, probably into the 1990s, as I reflect back, within the eating disorders community, there was a unwritten practice that somebody who had an eating disorder couldn't be part of the care team. But tell me about your experience as the first person in the history of the Academy for Eating Disorders to hold this role as patient carer representative. What were the challenges and how do you think the field is evolving in terms of understanding the role of people with lived experience.
1: It's funny because I think at the point in my journey that I did that role, I feel like, you know, I had not started my practice. Um, I, I felt very, and I've said this to you, Kathy, because ever since we met that many, many years ago, you've always treated me as an equal. And I didn't feel I got that treatment. I felt like I wasn't treated. I still felt that I was the sick one in the room. And, and it's not like anybody was like said anything. It was just the vibe that, you know, and, and I wish I had been more secure in myself because I think I'm so much further now in my recovery. I think I could have a different, I would feel differently just because I've gained confidence in what I know, but it was hard. It was hard. I didn't have PhD at that point. I didn't even have MS after, you know, I hadn't had my master's, so I felt under qualified. But Dasha Nichols, you know, I probably don't want to name names, but there were people on that board that embraced me. But now I think we have two or three on the board. So I took, I was the guinea pig, and it two or
0: three um, patient care representatives.
1: I think mean. there's, I think there's more than. One now, I don't know what the board structure looks like exactly, but I'm, I I took it for the team, and I'm glad I did
0: because mm-hmm. I think it was very very important. But mm-hmm. it wasn't easy, I'm sure. So Donna, as you describe your journey, I am really in awe of your courage. Actually, you say you took it for you know took one for the team, but you you leaned into your this recovery over and over again, and you also several times as we've been talking mentioned this idea of hope, Mm -hmm. right? That there was a clinician shaking her head that you were walking yourself out the door and potentially on a course towards the end of your life. You mentioned a clinician who communicated to you, uh, um, Amy Liu, whose life experience communicated to you the idea that there's, there's hope. Mm -hmm. And you leaned into this role as patient care representative thinking this might not be easy, but it makes for a better future. Tell me about how you think of that in your course of recovery and, and maybe in, in this story of connection. It was, I didn't always feel hopeful. I was pissed half the time because
1: I was miserable, but I I don't think you can ever lose hope. And I think that also brings connection because I don't look at this as a death sentence. You know, I know it has a high mortality rate and I have some very, very sick patients right now that may not survive, but the message that you can live life with this, just like you do diabetes, you know, you have to check your sugar. I think that that's, connection I want everybody to see. And I want them to see that, yeah, my life has had challenges, but every step of the way, the connection, whether it was a bad connection or it was a good connection, it got me to where I am now, where I feel that I'm finally at a place where I can say, I, I, I'm good. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm good at what I do. I love what I do. And I think that's another piece of it that I, I I'm passionate about it. And I think, you know, some therapists aren't, and a lot of them won't, don't want to take this on because mm-hmm. it's complicated and it's mm-hmm. sad, you know, because mm-hmm. it's not all, all done end
0: well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I never lose hope. Yeah. Lose hope game over. Right. Lose hope game over. So Donna, I've, we've been on a journey you've been on a journey and we are so fortunate that you are here connecting with us to share your story because there's so many lessons learned and so much wisdom that you've shared your re, your recounting of your own personal journey who you trusted who violated your trust the your willingness to continue to To trust the carers in your life, even when people didn't know really what I don't want to say they didn't know what they were doing, but the knowledge around treatment was so rudimentary and in some moments wrongheaded. And your perseverance in on this journey to connect to yourself, to find your own voice, as you connected to people who could therapeutically care is really an inspiration. Oh, thank you, Kathy. So thank you for sharing with us your, you. not only your starting point, but your journey and your wisdom at this point, both in your lived experience and as a clinician and all that you've contributed to the field in helping us really bring carers and people with lived experience into this complex story as we try to better understand and not only treat but prevent these disorders from uh, eclipsing people's lives so thank you so much Donna absolutely happy to do it Kathy thank you